Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-23 Parthicus So far, the whole thing seemed deceptively easy. Like Alexander the Great, he'd taken Nisibis and Arbella, reduced the whole of Adiabene, and now stood before the walls of Babylon. And unlike the Macedonian, Trajan had yet to face any serious resistance. Mesopotamia dangled its prize of wealthy cities, booming trade, and boundless frontiers, all his for the taking. The seduction was ancient and immensely powerful. But like many before and after him, he learned that taking the land and holding it were two very different things. For some rulers, the massive earthquake that had leveled Antioch in early 115 AD might have been a troubling sign. Trajan, of course, had taken it in stride, escaping his collapsing room through a window and basing himself in the city's hippodrome during several days of aftershocks. There's no mention of a massive relief effort, and Trajan may have delegated such tasks to the Syrian governor. The emperor's eyes were fixed to the east and south, and it'd take more than an earthquake to distract him. In the spring, Trajan's forces were again on the move. Stripping wood from the forests around the captured city of Nisibis, Trajan had a large fleet constructed and hauled overland to the Tigris. Across the river, the Romans faced the warriors of Adiabene, proud successors to their Assyrian forebears and former allies of the Judean zealots. Still, the sight of a fleet of ships emerging from the desert must have been a bit unnerving. In the end, Roman numbers and firepower proved decisive, and the defenders were unable to hold the river crossing. Once the Romans had a foothold on the far side of the Tigris, they commenced a campaign to capture the eastern half of the kingdom. At the same time, Trajan took several legions south along the Euphrates to the city of Dura Europos. 
Dur had been built four centuries earlier by Seleucus I Nicator, founder of the Seleucid Empire. It had been sited midway between the major cities of Seleucia Pieria, Antioch Seaport, and Seleucia on the Tigris north of Babylon. Its name came from Dur, the old Semitic word for fortress, and Europos, after Seleucus's hometown. In addition to being an important river crossing, Dura stood at the intersection of a major road to Roman Syria and another along the Euphrates. Even after two and a half centuries of Parthian rule, Dura's nobles took pride in their Macedonian heritage. Their fellow citizens were a mix of Macedonians, Parthians, Syrians, Arabs, Jews, and other local peoples, reflected in the languages of inscriptions and the temples to various gods. Well represented in both these respects were Dura's neighbors to the west, the Palmyrenes. And strap yourselves in, because yes, it's finally time to talk a bit about Palmyra. Like I mentioned a while back, the Palmyrenes were a confederation of four Arab tribes, the Komare, Batabul, Mazen, and Amliki. Each tribe brought with it their own god, which had remained the four main deities throughout Palmyra's existence. The Palmyrenes entered the historical record via a conflict with, wait, are you sitting down? Mark Antony. Firming up his role as Triumvir of the East, Antony attacked the Palmyrenes in 41 BC, hoping to plunder their wealth. In response, the Palmyrenes employed a novel defense, relocating themselves across the Euphrates until Antony got bored and went away. Like the early Emesenes, the Palmyrenes of the time were a nomadic tent-dwelling people, and their wealth and possessions remained portable. It wasn't until later, with the growth of trade, that the Palmyrenes adopted a permanent home. The location they chose was a palm tree oasis, midway between the Mediterranean and Euphrates and protected by surrounding deserts. The site was described by Pliny the Elder as having an outstanding location, a rich land, and pleasant springs. During the first century AD, the increasing wealth and power of both Parthia and Roman Syria led to a growth in regional trade. Not only were the Palmyrenes perfectly positioned to take advantage, but the Roman annexation of Emesa removed an aggressive local rival. At the same time, southern trade through Nabatea was steadily decreasing. Palmyra soon found itself the main regional player a loose parallel to what the Phoenicians experienced during the rise of Neo-Assyria. Still, the Palmyrenes faced one major obstacle. As archaeologist and historian Warwick Ball points out, the main Palmyrene trade route, running from Hit on the Euphrates through Palmyra to the minor Mediterranean port of Aradus, was hardly optimal. If you look at a map like, say, the ones I posted for this episode, you're crossing a lot of open desert, when instead you could just go farther up the Euphrates and have a short overland trip straight to the major city of Antioch. Which means, to give them their full due, the Palmyrenes basically created their own trade route. 
through a mix of efficient logistics and military strength. In the former respect, Palmyrene merchants established a strong presence all down the length of the Euphrates, from Dura Europos in the north, down through Hit, Babylon, Vologasius, and finally the Gulf port of Cherax. And they used this vast network to facilitate the transport of goods. In the latter respect, the Palmyrenes maintained a strong standing army. Strong enough to deter bandits, and strong enough to dissuade merchants from considering other trade routes. Because, you know, it'd be a real shame if anything happened to that nice caravan of yours. As historian Benjamin Isaac lays out, the responsibility for the safety of caravans on their trip through the desert and beyond was accepted by individual Palmyrenes, who often accompanied the caravans in person. They had the knowledge, the connections, and the means to protect the caravans against raiders. A number of inscriptions thank them for their help in times of danger. Larger caravans were financed by groups of merchants or even by the whole city. The combination of trading outposts, deals with nomads for safe passage, and military force when things went awry gave the Palmyrenes a winning edge, and soon they were raking in the benefits. In another parallel with the Phoenicians, and Carthage in particular, Palmyra was ruled by a council of elders, a mix of wealthy merchants and tribal leaders. It's uncertain when Palmyra became subject to Rome, sometime between the reigns of Vespasian and Trajan, and possibly at the same time as Nabatea. But again, like Phoenicia under the Assyrians, it was imperial control in the loosest of forms. Like Nabatea, the Palmyrenes were allowed to retain their own army, possibly even under their own officers. In fact, Trajan had raised a levy of Palmyrene archers to support his current campaign. Speaking of which, after investing Dura with said Palmyrene archers and erecting a triumphal arch, Trajan continued down the Euphrates to the ancient capital of Babylon. The city had certainly seen better days. Its last hurrah as an imperial capital had come under Alexander the Great. Shortly after his death, Babylon had been forcibly depopulated, and its citizens relocated to the new Seleucid capital of Seleucia on the Tigris. Around 140 BC, the great Parthian king Mithridates incorporated Babylon into his growing empire, and it had remained a Parthian possession ever since. Cassius Dio dismisses Babylon as merely mounds of stones and ruins, but it likely retains some elements of its former glory. Either way, Trajan had reached the mid-Euphrates without facing much resistance, and he could be forgiven for thinking the Parthians might be off somewhere on vacation. In reality, King Osroes had adopted a Fabian strategy of tracking the Roman army without offering battle. He was also still preoccupied with ongoing civil war in the east. After wintering in the region, Trajan began 116 AD with a push north against the twin cities of Seleucia on the Tigris and Ctesiphon. The cities had an interesting joint history. 
King Mithridates of Parthia had captured Seleucia around 140 BC. To avoid imposing on its largely Macedonian citizens, he'd founded a new city of Tessaphon, just across the Tigris, as a military camp and Parthian winter capital. Over time, the two cities had melded together and absorbed neighboring villages to create a sizable metropolis. Again, Trajan managed to seize both Seleucia and Tessaphon with barely a fight, which was kind of a big deal, since Tessaphon was a Parthian capital. But, of course, unlike the Romans, Parthia had more than one capital, and could always re-entrench further east. Trajan's next drive was south along the Tigris to the Persian Gulf. And if there was an economic motive behind the invasion, it might be found here. Because after Trajan's annexation of Nabatea, the Gulf city of Cherax was the last major terminus of Indian trade still outside Roman control. But also keep in mind that Cassius Dio attributed Trajan's campaign to a simple quest for glory and Trajan himself seemed motivated to follow in the footsteps of Alexander. Like Nisibis and Babylon, Cherax also bore the mark of the Macedonian conqueror. Stumbling out of the vast and pitiless Gedrosian desert, a graveyard for thousands of his veterans, Alexander had founded his final Alexandria at a site on the Persian Gulf. The city was named Alexandria and Susiana for its proximity to the ancient Elamite capital of Susa. After its destruction by a flood, the city was rebuilt around 170 BC by a Seleucid governor named Hispeosines. A few decades later, with Seleucid power waning, Hispeosines declared the region independent and renamed the city Cherax of Hispeosines. Cherax being the Greek word for a palisaded fort. Over time, this had morphed into its current name of Cherax Bassinu. The surrounding kingdom, known as Cherasina or Messina, remained quasi-independent, and its king Athambelus welcomed the Romans. It was here that Trajan observed a merchant ship sailing off to India and lamented that I should certainly have crossed over to the Indy if I were still young. But Trajan was a man of 63, and his passion for winning new territories was tempered by his responsibility for governing the empire. He may have also realized, like Alexander before him, that once you start conquering the Near East, there's no logical endpoint until you reach the Hindu Kush. It was an all-or-nothing game, and Trajan was getting too old for all-or-nothing games. But still, it was a remarkable achievement— Trajan was the first Roman emperor, the first ruler period, and possibly even the first human to have stood on the shores of both the Atlantic Ocean and the Persian Gulf, and he was certainly the first to claim dominion over all territories in between. His dispatch to Rome to that effect prompted a response that he was welcome to celebrate a triumph for as many nations as he wanted. Just, you know, fill in the blanks on the triumph form. But like Germanicus in southern Egypt or Alexander in India, the far point of Trajan's journey would also be the high point. 
Even as he lingered in Cherax, Trajan's Near Eastern conquests were being undone. One by one, the Roman garrisons he'd spread like breadcrumbs along his path were being attacked, driven out, and slaughtered. Unaware of the danger, Trajan remained on the attack, dispatching Roman forces to capture nearby Susa. But when the emperor returned to Babylon to sacrifice to Alexander's spirit in the chamber where he died, he was inundated with a tidal wave of bad news. Most major cities the Romans had taken, Tessaphon, Seleucia on the Tigris, Nisibis, even the Osroene capital of Edessa, had erupted in revolt. At least one cause was the unwelcome burden of Roman administration. In the wake of his conquests, Trajan had reorganized his possessions into three new Roman provinces, Armenia, Assyria, and Mesopotamia. Of course, provincialization meant new laws, obligations, taxes, and duties, pretty much angering everyone from local elites on down. It also emerged that some northern revolts were sparked by local Jews. Half a century since the Jewish revolt and destruction of Jerusalem, many Jews, unsurprisingly, still burned with hatred for the Romans. Their anger was only exacerbated by punitive measures, like a tax on Judaism, enacted in the wake of the revolt. In conjunction with the uprisings, the Parthians had finally recovered their backbone. A sizable army, led by Mithridates IV, the brother of King Osroes, and his son, Sanatruk II, had returned to take back Tessaphon. Trajan dispatched two commanders to put down the northern rebellions, and two others against the Parthians. One northern general was killed in action, but the other, Trajan's old friend Lucius Coietus, was able to reconquer Nisibis and burn Edessa to the ground, putting an end to the reign of King Abgar VII. Meanwhile, the two other commanders defeated the Parthian army, recaptured Tessaphon, and put Seleucia on the Tigris to the torch. Increasingly eager to declare victory and return home, Trajan decided to settle the Parthian problem the old-fashioned way. One of Osroes' sons, a prince named Parthamospates, had been living in Roman exile. Trajan hauled him out, dusted him off, and introduced him to the Parthians as their new king. He was received with, I'm going to say, polite applause and a sea of tight-lipped smiles. Trajan had barely installed his client before he met the other half of the Parthian civil war. Vologases III, effective king of the Parthian East, arrived with a large force of Parthians and Scythians and threatened further conflict. In an uncharacteristic move, Trajan offered Vologases rule over Armenia as a Roman client king. Vologases accepted the offer, and the new King Vologases of Armenia would remain in power for the next 27 years. Why had Trajan made the offer? Dio doesn't say, and it's hard to speculate. Maybe his early victories had given him a false sense of security, and it was finally dawning on him just how difficult it might be to rule the Near East from Rome. 
But if Trajan's capitulation to Volagasis was strange, his next move was even stranger. For some reason, he became obsessed with capturing the fortress city of Hatra. Hatra was a Seleucid-era caravan city lying on a trade route between Tessaphon and Nisibis. It was also known for its massive temple complex to the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash. Which kind of makes sense, because sunlight was about the only resource available in the region. Cassius Dio refers to Hatra as being neither large nor prosperous. The surrounding country is mostly desert, and holds neither timber, nor plants, nor water, save a small amount, poor in quality. There's nothing in the brochure about great views, good schools, or a walkable downtown, but still it refused to surrender to the Romans, and Trajan couldn't let that go. He sent horsemen against its formidable walls, but they were easily thrown back. Trajan even removed his imperial regalia and joined in a cavalry charge. But the defenders recognized him by his gray hair and shot arrows in his direction, killing the man by his side and nearly wounding the emperor. The ensuing siege was characterized by a brutally hot sun, a virtual plague of flies, and a lack of local supplies. It was, in the end, an utter waste of effort and by the time Trajan relented, his health was finally failing. And then, well, things got worse. Word reached the emperor that Jews across the east had taken advantage of Rome's distraction to rise up against local elites. The whole thing had started in Cyrenaica, just to the west of Egypt. A self-proclaimed Jewish king named Andreas had gathered a large group of followers and incited them to destroy temples and other symbols of Roman rule. He then set them to slaughter on a massive scale, effectively depopulating large swaths of the province. Andreas soon carried his revolt to Egypt, even as a second rebellion erupted on Cyprus under a local Jewish leader named Artemian. Upon hearing the news, Trajan dispatched his naval commander and Praetorian prefect, Quintus Marcius Turbo, to sail to Egypt and put down the rebellion. Though it had taken nearly a full year, Marcius was successful in pacifying both Egypt and Cyrenaica. Meanwhile, another Roman army crushed the Cypriot revolt, and a subsequent law forbade any Jew from ever setting foot on the island. At the same time, the Jewish revolt had spread to Judea, under two brothers named Shemaiah and Ahia from the city of Leda. Trajan elevated Lucius Coietus to governor of Judea and tasked him with restoring Roman control over the province. Coietus captured Leda and crucified the Jewish leadership. In doing so, he both ended the string of Jewish revolts and gave the conflict its name, the Kittos War, with Kittos being a corruption of Coetus. Returning to Antioch, Trajan planned another campaign for the following year, to crush remaining resistance and firm up Roman control. But the emperor's body was already failing, and in the spring of 117 AD, he decided to sail for Rome. 
he only made it as far as Cilicia before dying of an illness. Under dubious circumstances, his cousin Hadrian, the current governor of Syria, was declared to have been his adopted son and elevated to Roman emperor. After securing the support of the legions, Hadrian quickly turned his attention to Lucius Coetus. All things considered, the former prince, governor, senator, general, and close confidant of Trajan was simply too popular a figure to remain in play. In quick succession, the new emperor stripped Coetus of his Mauritanian bodyguards, then his governorship, and finally his life. In fact, Coetus was only the first victim of Hadrian's inaugural purge. In Parthia the same year, Osroes returned to Tessaphon to depose his traitorous son and reclaim the Parthian throne. Partha Maspates fled back to the safety of Rome and was soon granted rule over the restored client kingdom of Osroene. Of all the eastern players, Vologases III probably came off best. Now ruling Armenia as a Roman client, along with the eastern half of Parthia. In 118 AD, as soon as it was politically expedient, Hadrian abandoned the eastern provinces recently won by Trajan. His reasons for doing so were likely sound. They were too far from Rome, too resistant to Roman domination, and, in short, the costs outweighed the benefits. Prizes taken for personal glory held little value in Hadrian's more rational empire. In the east, the Euphrates once again became the Roman frontier, and Hadrian turned his attention to affairs in the west. In 120 AD, Gaius Julius Fabius Samsigirimus III Silas, high priest of Elagabal in the Syrian city of Emesa, died at the age of 47. Having followed the Roman advance and retreat, Silas likely died content that the whole affair was over. Roads used by armies could be returned to traders and pilgrims, allowing Syria and Emesa to reap the benefits of peace. If there'd been any particular incident to have drawn Silas's attention, it was likely Trajan's failed assault on the city of Hatra. He may have found it unsurprising that the offense to Shamash had been followed by the emperor's death. Silas was succeeded as high priest by his eldest son Gaius Julius Longinus Sohamus, known simply as Longinus. His two younger brothers, Julius Agrippa and Gaius Julius Sohamus, had already left Emesa to seek their fortunes in the capital. Knowing their own family history, they likely had few illusions. Rome had elevated their ancestors to kings and queens, and even given one dominion over half the Roman world. But Rome had also brought their family betrayal, deposition, and death. The particular portion for this generation would only be revealed in time. <laughs>